This is Protocol Breakdown on the CBC EMP Podcast. This is Tony Held, and you're listening to Protocol Breakdown. Welcome to the show. We are hosted on the Columbia and Boone County Emergency Medical Professionals Podcast. Uh, Just a reminder, the EMS Skills Open Gym is this Saturday. That's April 21st. We're doing the morning session from 8.30 to 12.30. Drop on by. Uh, We will be happy to see you. Uh, We did forego the afternoon session, uh, but we've got lots of good stuff there for you in the morning. Okay, today's show, we are covering the best of the rest, or maybe the worst, of trauma. We're covering burns, crush injuries, drownings, hangings, and head injuries. A little confession up front, uh, each of these topics could be a podcast in and of themselves, but we have desperately got to give trauma a breather for at least a little while. I'll spend a little more time on burns and hangings, uh, but I'll be hitting up the pearls for the most part with the rest. All right, so the first thing we're going to cover are burns. So burn types, we've got thermal, chemical, electrical. In thermal burns, uh, if the clothing is loose, especially if it's smoldering, we need to remove it. If it's stuck, leave it. Don't try to peel it off. We've commonly been told to always cover burns with sterile dressings because they are at high risk for infection. So these patients are at high risk for infection in the hospital, especially after debridement when they are having regular dressing changes. Most of our burns still have intact, cauterized, or even charred skin that doesn't necessarily act as a germ net. A clean sheet will work just fine. Uh, Chemical burns, you need to know your chemical exposure. Don't burn yourself while clearing it from the patient. Severe exposures will require hazardous materials trained personnel with proper PPE. They should be knowledgeable on proper decontamination. If it isn't something that requires a hazmat truck, common sense still rules. Wet chemicals get copious wet irrigation. Dry chemicals get brushed off first and then copious wet irrigation. Again, if you've got somebody that understands the chemical agent, they are definitely better equipped for that decontamination. Uh, But if you've only got your common sense to work with, that's what you should be doing. Electrical burns are of special interest to me. Uh, Entry and exit wounds are not indicative of the route of electricity. Uh, While they can give us a general idea, electricity doesn't necessarily have to travel a visually direct route. It can bounce around everywhere. Think about uh, bullets when they ricochet off bones. Electricity can really do the same thing. You want to make sure that you do a 12 lead. All burn patients are at risk for cardiac dysrhythmias due to cellular destruction, but this is especially true in electrical burns. All right, so we're going to cover a little bit on uh, airway burns. Unless you have access to RSI, uh, your intubation attempt is likely going to worsen the laryngeal edema. So if you can afford to let that airway be managed on its own, do so. We have been taught for years that you must intubate early because burn patients rapidly lose their airway. Now, while this is true, it shouldn't be generalized to the entirety of burn patients. As many as 80 to 93% of burn patients that require hospitalization have no inhalation injury. Those that do have inhalation injury are further subdivided as smoke inhalation, upper airway burns, and then lower airway burns. 
we have to differentiate patients that do have the lower airway burns versus those that don't. The majority of patients stop inhaling when exposed to a heat source. This results in the traditional singed face, charred nostrils, and even carbonaceous sputum, but these do not necessitate a lower airway burn. We are better off listening for striderous respirations or in the unconscious patient, taking a very gentle look with a video laryngoscope. These patients should have a low threshold for surgical cricothyrotomy. I'll give you a brief example from my own personal experience. Uh, we were called out for a woman who was effectively uh, 90% uh, covered in burns that were uh, nearly third degree throughout. Uh, she had a completely charred face. Uh, you really couldn't recognize gender or race uh, by looking at her face. Uh, very horribly burnt, lips swollen, tongue swollen, uh, singed uh, uh, mucosa inside her mouth. Um, but she was actually talking to us and maintaining a SAT of 98% on room air, no striderous respirations. Now, I had considered uh, performing a crike on her in the field, uh, but to be honest with you, I, I hadn't really prepared for uh, what I was presented with, which was horribly charred skin, um, short, thick neck. Uh, anytime I flexed her chin, uh, the skin began to uh, flake and crack. Uh, I would later find out that the trauma surgeon that performed her crike said that it was one of the most difficult surgical crikes she had ever performed in her career uh, and was actually having to saw through the tissue with the scalpel. Now that surgical crike had to be revised later on even because they were having difficulty getting a large enough tube through there. Well, when I talked to the burn specialist about that patient, he said that upon visualization, she didn't even really have laryngeal burns. Now that's insane to me because this woman was completely engulfed in flame, but she had stopped breathing in. The majority of the burns that we were seeing were all external. Even on her lips and tongue, it was effectively external. She hadn't breathed any of that superheated gas in, so she didn't sustain any of those lower airway burns. So speaking of body surface area, uh, we are notoriously horrible at identifying BSA. Use a chart we overestimate all the time. Only partial thickness burns and beyond count to this total. The more burned they are, both in size and severity, the worse they auto-regulate temperature and the worse they will shift fluid. We can exacerbate this effect by overloading fluid too quickly early in the resuscitation. So let's go over fluid resuscitation uh, probably as briefly as I'm capable. So you've heard of the Parkland formula, maybe the Brook formula, or maybe the consensus formula. Well, none of these formulas have been used consistently as designed in pre-hospital. There are modifications made for each to make them EMS friendly, and we just don't have access to colloids, and frequently we don't even have access to lactated ringer solution. The one consistency in using these formulas is that we frequently screw it up. We infuse fluid too fast because we are programmed to believe that patients with burns need fluid now. In reality, we give it way too fast and ultimately over-resuscitate early and under-resuscitate late. So let's break down the reality of fluid recess in our burn patient. 
The real goal here is to keep their intravascular volume sufficient to maintain perfusion, especially to the kidneys. This is measured as a urine output of about 30 to 50 mils an hour in adults, not very much at all. I'll run you through a couple sample patients to give you an idea of what pre-hospital fluid recess rates we should be looking at. So a 70 kilo patient with 20% body surface area should get about 2.8 to 5.6 liters in their first 24 hours, depending on which formula you're using. That equates to an infusion rate of only 150 to 350 mils an hour. We exceed that all the time on just normal patients that we don't even need to be giving fluid to. We have to pay attention. If we have a 90 kilo patient with a 50% body surface area, they should be getting between 9 and 18 liters in the first 24 hours, which only gives us an infusion rate of about 400 to 1100 mils an hour. If we go to the far extreme end, so you can see uh, just how much trouble we can get into even by following the formula correctly, we should take a 150 kilo patient with an 80% body surface area and then we're going to give them 24 to 48 liters in the first 24 hours. That's an infusion rate of one to three liters an hour. I can't even imagine what this patient would look like if they got 48 liters of fluid in 24 hours. So what should we be doing? Well, this comes from a really great lecture that I got from one of our burn physicians uh, in my critical care course. And he just really figured out what the formulas equated to and gave us some average infusion rates. So a 20% body surface area is the cutoff for needing fluid resuscitation. We really shouldn't be giving fluids for less than 20. So a human-sized patient between 70 and 100 kilos should probably get about 300 mils an hour. That's only a little bit higher than twice our IV maintenance fluids. A 50% body surface area burn on the same average-ish patient would get about 700 mils an hour. 80% BSA carries a high mortality rate, but we should still be cautious in giving more than a liter an hour. So that's 300, 700, 1,000 for 20, 50, 80. In a normal transport time, so an hour or less, I would be calling for orders before exceeding a liter of fluid on a burn patient. And I hate calling for orders, but it might be time to switch gears and initiate a presser like Levofed. My point in all of that is that if we're slamming two liters into a severely burned patient on a short transport, we're likely harming them just as much as we're harming our bleeding patients when we do the same thing. Okay, switch gears into crush injuries. Our current practice is a little antiquated. We're taught that the release of a crushed extremity will result in an outpouring of acid and potassium from destroyed tissues. We combat this with sodium bicarbonate. A common protocol is to give 50 milliequivalents prior to releasing the extremity, and then to give 50 milliequivalents in a liter bag of normal saline. Sometimes this is combined with placing a tourniquet to prevent that acidotic hyperkalemic reservoir from flooding the body. Another alternative is called a rhabdomyolysis protocol, which involves uh, usually 150 milliequivalents of sodium bicarb in a one liter bag of normal saline or lactated ringers. The idea on this one is to really assist the kidneys in clearing the toxins and prevent significant injury to the kidneys. Now I've questioned why we don't use calcium chloride and doing some digging around, I found some people 
do use calcium chloride and attempt to balance out the hyperkalemia. But there's a problem. We really don't know much about crush injury at all. We often treat crush syndrome in the hospital, which is essentially the prevention and management of kidney injury and compartment syndrome. But in all reality, we don't really know what happens in what time frame and whether there is anything to really prevent up front. This is another case like backboards, where we did it because we think it's better than nothing, but we never bothered to study whether it was better than nothing, or if it was even better than other therapies available. I want to recommend a talk by Cliff Reed uh, from Smack Chicago titled The Wrong Stuff. Uh, It's mainly about dogmalysis, but the first half of this talk is about this issue specifically and is must-listen material. I've got a link to it in the show notes. Definitely check that out. We're going to move on to drowning, which has a little special place in my heart, uh, given that I have a super nerdy background in lifeguarding. Um, but as far as the management of the drowning or near drowning patient, uh, first and foremost, we should be worried about hypothermia. You thought I was going to say pulmonary edema, but in all reality, hypothermia is the most common complication associated with near drowning. Water below body temperature can crash core temp rapidly. Always assume a drowning victim is hypothermic until proven otherwise. Cardiac arrest patients seem to receive neurologic protection due to this hypothermia, leading to the old adage that they're not dead until they're warm and dead. Now, it may be that warm is only 35C, uh, but certainly 26 is uh, worth rewarming uh, before calling the code. The next complication that we should be prepared to manage is pulmonary edema. Aspiration of water may result in pulmonary edema frequently within the first few hours of exposure. As with all things pulmonary edema, give it CPAP. There isn't any evidence to support prophylactic CPAP in these patients, but if they are hypoxic, you're certainly not losing anything by starting with CPAP. Pulmonary edema can be difficult to detect in its early onset. All right, so getting into that lifeguardy stuff, uh, let's talk about rescuing uh, near drowning patients while they're still in the water. Something that was of great interest to me wasn't something that I dealt with uh, in the indoor pool setting, but certainly something to be worried about in the open water setting. Uh, the risk of collapse upon uh, removal of the subject from the water. So upright immersion in water causes a 30 to 60% increase in cardiac output just due to the surrounding water pressure squeezing them. Rapid removal causes immediate release of that pressure and the patient will lose consciousness. The severity of that syncopal episode would of course be patient dependent, but it can be prevented by pulling them out in a supine or prone position. This can be likened to mast pants. So when you deflate mast pants all at once, you get a severe drop in blood pressure. If you release them one compartment at a time, as you were supposed to do, uh, the patient would typically compensate. Now, as far as the act of rescuing, uh, it's important that you guys remember reach, throw, row, go. Uh, This is going out all the way to Boy Scouts, to any type of wilderness medicine. You want to reach something out to the patient, throw something with a rope on it to the patient, row uh, some sort of boat out to them so that they have something to climb up on 
or if you are prepared and trained, then go get them. Drowning people are exceptionally dangerous. I would always use a flotation device or safety line at a bare minimum. Uh, you can fully expect to be punched in the face, knocked unconscious, uh, drugged down to the bottom, you name it. Drowning people are dangerous. Okay, moving into hanging. So the first uh, thing that I want to talk about with hanging is uh, the potential for asphyxiation. So if they did not break their neck, they just uh, asphyxiated. Uh, these are patients that we could potentially intervene on. So the rope acts as a blood choke since it is circumferential. So just like an MMA choke. Immediate removal of the strangling device is obviously the first priority, but you might have asked, how long do I have to remove it? Well, interestingly enough, not very long. Loss of consciousness is noted within 8 to 20 seconds, with convulsions initiating at 10 to 20 seconds. Decerebrate and decorticate posturing begin somewhere between one and a half and two and a half minutes. So severe brain injury is occurring during that posturing phase. That is when we have to intervene, or before. In the same series of videos that those numbers come from, all movements stop between one and seven minutes. That is too late, and those patients have no chance of functional neurologic outcome. That is complete brain death. You may see tracheal rupture or laryngeal fracture. Uh, this can be suspected with stridorous respirations uh, and or subcutaneous emphysema. Definitive airway control should be established as soon as possible. Uh, rapid movement to surgical cricothyrotomy may be necessary depending on the level of tracheal injury. You should definitely have a low threshold uh, for advancing onto that if your patient is uh, starting to air trap because of that injury. You may see pulmonary edema in these patients. Uh, the massive sympathetic discharge associated with serious brain injury can result in uh, neurogenic pulmonary edema. This is more difficult to treat, though PEEP should be your frontline option. Uh, this is primarily a byproduct of increased intracranial pressure. Uh, so unfortunately, as you up your uh, numbers on your CPAP, you may even decrease venous return. You could starve the uh, cardiac output, and then you'll be um, kind of up a creek without a paddle. Um, but this is why this is a much longer-term process of treating. The easy one is post-obstructive pulmonary edema. So they have this significant negative pressure uh, generated by inspiration against that obstruction. Once that obstruction is removed, uh, they suddenly get to take a big breath in and uh, that negative pressure shift may rapidly cause a fluid shift behind it. This can typically be relieved by uh, CPAP just as in drowning with good outcomes. You may see uh, spinal cord transection. So fracture of the upper cervical spine, usually at C2, is referred to as a hangman's fracture. Um, if they are still alive, you should assume the need for cervical immobilization. If they're not alive, uh, they have a pretty poor prognosis, um, but you're going to work them just the same. Uh, it's just, you know, cervical immobilization comes secondary to uh, managing that cardiac arrest. You may see any number of spinal cord injuries. Uh, you could see paralysis, hemiparesis, loss of temperature, sensation, um, any kind of compression or uh, cervical spine fracture can certainly injure the spinal cord. 
There are some uh, indications for poor prognosis uh, that we can recognize in the field. Uh, so that includes long hanging time. So if they're hanging past the point that uh, they are brain dead, then they are certainly dead. Uh, cervical spine injury comes with a pretty poor uh, prognosis attached to it. Hypotension is always bad. That's indicative of central nervous system dysfunction. And then, of course, cardiac arrest is the ultimate poor prognosticator. Now, this isn't all sad. I actually found an Indian case series reporting three attempted hangings without cervical injury that made a full neurologic recovery after aggressive management, including airway control and ventilation. These patients had not yet sustained cardiac arrest. So if they aren't dead yet... Uh, we are not pissing in the wind. We actually have a chance uh, to get these patients back and get them uh, the mental health services that they need. All right, we got one more topic before we close it out. Uh, it is head injuries. So generally, we are taught some uh, oversimplifications for a very complex problem. So we are taught that increased intracranial pressure is always bad. Well, this is sort of accurate. Uh, if you go into your Wayback Machine, the Monroe Kelly Doctrine states that there's only enough room in your skull for the stuff that's already there. So any intracranial bleeding, any increase in cerebrospinal fluid, and any change in the shape of the skull will result in an increase in intracranial pressure. So ICP is the opposition to mean arterial pressure. Whatever's left over is the cerebral perfusion pressure. If your ICP is too high for your MAP to overcome sufficiently, your cerebral perfusion pressure is too low and the brain begins to die. So we need to focus on assisting venous drainage. That is the most effective way we can decrease ICP in the field is to keep the patient midline and the head of bed between 30 and 45 degrees as our patient condition allows. Now you don't need a protractor, just use some common sense. If we're allowing sufficient venous drainage, our ICP uh, will not go past whatever its peak intensity is. If we cut off that venous flow, it will increase even more. So we gotta maximize our cerebral perfusion pressure by decreasing the ICP as much as we can uh, purely by positioning. So that brings us to our next uh, thing that we are taught. Hyperventilation constricts vessels in the brain, allowing decreased intracranial pressure. So the principle is that hypocapnia causes cerebral vasoconstriction, reducing the overall volume of blood in the brain. Now, if you think about that for a moment, we have tissue that's ischemic because the pressure is too high. So now we're going to take away the component that's bringing oxygen and glucose to the tissues. This is clearly a risky balance and one that I would argue is too difficult to pull off in the field. The standard has been to hyperventilate to an end title of 30 to 35, which is on the soft side of normal. I feel like this is too difficult to do without an apneic, mechanically ventilated patient. The risk of excessive ventilation, especially when looking at how often we overventilate non-head injured patients, just seems too great to me. All right, so there uh, once was a debate about open versus closed head injuries, which ones were worse, whether they required different therapies. Now, I will say they required different therapies, but not ones that we necessarily own in the field. As I peruse the literature associated with these injuries, I have come to a conclusion. 
We can't generalize head injuries into categories such as open or closed or depressed skull fracture or penetrating trauma. It's just not that simple. It all depends. Now, that's not to say that we don't know which patients are sickest. Decreased GCS and increased ICP are always bad. But outcomes are highly dependent on injury pattern. Many patients will survive exposed brain matter. Many self-inflicted gunshot wounds survive, as well as other penetrating head, uh, head traumas. Depressed skull fractures might not even be unconscious. This was not what I was taught. I was taught all depressed skull fracture patients die. But it's not that simple. I dug up a paper stating that uh, of the population they studied, 25% of their depressed skull fractures didn't even lose consciousness. 25% lost consciousness for less than an hour. Okay, so how do we treat them if we can't necessarily differentiate them by type? Well, our efforts in head injured patients should still be geared in minimizing time to intervention and maximizing their status while we're caring for them. So get them to a trauma center quickly uh, and make sure that they are effectively being treated while you're on their way there. To that end, do not fight them. The days of fighting head injured patients are gone. Sedate them early and heavy. Do not be afraid of ketamine. You brawling with them will increase their blood pressure a heck of a lot more than ketamine ever had the potential for. And it may not even really increase ICP. A lot of the data stating that ketamine was bad in head injuries is coming under heavy fire from the foam community. Control your head injured patient's airway as needed, but be careful. These patients have even less tolerance for hypoxic events. Prepare right, look once, pass on your first try. Move to your backup immediately if you're unsuccessful. This is not the time to get caught up in your own ego and try multiple times. Okay, so that wraps our series on trauma. I will recap our pre-hospital goals of care, and then I will send you guys pack, and we're running long on time. So pre-hospital goals of care, we should be preventing death and permanent disability. We should be the salvage experts. In trauma management especially, we should adopt the mindset of our forefathers, our EMS forefathers. Our discipline was created to get trauma patients to trauma surgeons before they died. We are not charged with fixing these uh, trauma patients, but we do have to stall their dying process long enough to arrive at definitive care. We want to identify the traumatic insult. Everything in our care plan builds off of identification of the traumatic insult. Ensure that our treatments are not contributing to delayed mortality. Trauma patients may die up front in our care, or they may die sometime during their hospital stay. We have to do our best to not be the reason that they died later on in that hospital stay. Okay, so that brings us to the very end of trauma, at least for now. Next show, at the request of Liz Kendrick, will be on delirium tremens associated with alcohol withdrawal. So that one will be interesting. I don't actually have a, a great foundation of knowledge on that, so I will be researching plenty myself. You can catch all the show notes for this episode at cbcemp.proboards.com. Shoot me some feedback while you're there and let me know what you think. I would love to get a discussion going. You can subscribe to my show and all the future CBC EMP podcasts by hitting up iTunes or SoundCloud. Just search for CBC EMP. 
our next episode rolling out will be the conclusion of uh, Dr. Stilly's cardiac arrest management series. So look forward to that one coming up in just a couple days. This was Tony Held with Protocol Breakdown for Columbia and Boone County Emergency Medical Professionals. I'll catch you again soon. Thank you.